transition, and really, I guess we're headed down the backstretch because we spent um, uh, quite a bit more time in 1 Timothy than we will be in 2 Timothy. Um, we'll be doing, uh, I believe, a, a chapter a week is our goal as we work towards um, August and back to uh, school, closing out our series this summer through 1 and 2 Timothy as we look at each week and discuss um, characteristics of a gospel-driven church and attributes of a gospel-transformed um, people. That has been uh, where we have been over the past uh, few months, it seems like, together. And so, um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, we have read our passage for this morning, and so now I want to do um, just a little bit of work to assist in our transition out of 1 Timothy and into 2 Timothy, just as um, just a point of reference, who here has engaged with uh, 2 Timothy before? Anyone read through 2 Timothy before? Wonderful. Awesome. Uh, wonderful, wonderful book. Um, have so uh, richly enjoyed time in 2 Timothy uh, in the past. And um, its message and the hope that it points us to um, as those who are uh, undoubtedly to suffer as a result of following after Jesus. And there is this really neat, natural transition from 1 Timothy on into 2 Timothy because uh, last week we talked about fighting for the faith, right? You guys remember the image that we, uh, that we, that we kind of painted? We sought to put to death this idea um, that following after Jesus is cushy, right? And plush and chill and absent of suffering, right? And we instead decided to um, begin embracing this, this biblical concept of the faith and following after Christ and the difficulty that oftentimes results. Um, that is what we see as we begin our time exploring just the, the context of Paul's writing of this second letter to Timothy. Um, most believe that this letter was written between 64 and 65 AD. And so some time has passed um, since Paul's first letter as he now writes under Roman imprisonment and the rule of Nero, who, um, for those of you who have been through like 12th grade um, history class, perhaps you're somewhat familiar uh, with who Neo is. He was certainly uh, Nero, not Neo, not the like rapper, although um, that's interesting too, uh, but Nero, right? Um, arguably one of the most evil and just narcissistic, I think we could say, rulers um, ever, right, uh, of any nation. Now, there is uh, some debate as to whether or not this is, just for point of reference purpose, uh, if this is the same imprisonment that uh, is recorded in Acts chapter 28, where we find Paul imprisoned in Rome, um, some believe that this is a different imprisonment. I tend to, um, to, to believe that it is the same imprisonment that we see referenced in Acts chapter 28, although um, you could disagree with me and we don't have to fight about it. We can still fellowship. And so, um, but it is helpful for us to, again, see that time stamp. Um, there is, however, no debate, um, regardless of, of if this is the first or second imprisonment that Paul is under in Rome, um, there's no debate concerning the historic mistreatment of Christians that occurred under the reign of Nero. Um, just a few of uh, just a few you know of, of the things that we see him participating in as it relates to Christians and the persecution of the faith. He is known for feeding Christians to wild animals, um, to, to animals and even putting on shows um, in order that those um, in the city might come and observe and watch and be uh, 
entertained if you can if you can call it that. Um, in addition, uh, people he is given credit for um, covering Christians in wax and employing them as human candles to light his garden for parties. And so why is that important? Well, it helps us again to understand the, the difficulty um, in which Paul finds himself in. The message, however, is clear. But the, the message is that it is, it is no longer only the gospel message that is under attack, which we observe in 1 Timothy, but it is now gospel people who are under attack in this most horrific fashion. Paul understands as he writes this letter to Timothy that his life is drawing to an end. He's going to make a handful of statements throughout these four chapters to help us to understand this realization that he has begun to embrace, right? That the end of his race is near, right? There is still, as we will observe later on, hope from Paul that he will see Timothy again. And so there is a sense in this which is there is a sense in which this is his last will and testament, but there's also this great hope that he has that he will uh, see uh, and fellowship with Timothy, um, with Timothy again. Paul's circumstances between his first and second letter are very different. Timothy's circumstances, however, are not so much, at least not in the sense that the conflicts of the first letter have not resolved themselves in the second letter. We see this young pastor continuing to labor for the sake of the gospel in the face of false teaching and false teachers. And Paul's encouragement to him is this, endure, right? Like, endure hardship, endure difficulty, endure trial, endure suffering. Things in this season for Paul and for Timothy, at least circumstantially, are not getting easier, easier, but in fact they are getting more difficult. This is a deeply personal letter from Paul to Timothy. And this is a letter that is from the very beginning until the very end saturated with the gospel. In fact, and I would encourage you to make note of this because there is a sense in which we're going to follow this outline as we work our way through the book. The great Anglican priest John Stott goes as far as to break the letter down into four primary parts, all centering on the gospel and a series of calls from Paul in light of that. In fact, he, he breaks it down this way. This is, this is Stott's outline of 2 Timothy. Chapter 1. This call to guard the gospel. Chapter 2, a, a call to suffer for the gospel. Chapter 3, continue in the gospel. And chapter 4, proclaim the gospel. And so we have chapter 1, this call from Paul to Timothy to guard the gospel. Chapter 2, suffer for the gospel. Chapter 3, continue in the gospel. And chapter 4, after I've said all of these things to you, Timothy, be faithful to proclaim the gospel. I want us to look at the main idea on two levels this morning. I want us to begin by looking at it on a book level because we are in chapter 1, verse 1 of this four-chapter letter from Paul to Timothy. I want us to understand the, the big picture of this book, and then I want us to uh, focus our attention on chapter 
one. And so on a book level, as we consider what Paul is communicating from a 30,000 foot perspective to this Pastor Timothy, the church at Ephesus, and how God is communicating to the church today, we see this, a call to remain faithful, right? A call to remain faithful, faithful in the face of difficulty, opposition, and error. Be faithful, right, Timothy? Be faithful, church, right? In the face of difficulty and opposition and error, Right? Be faithful in ministry. Be faithful to the message of the gospel. Be faithful to sound doctrine and faithful to Christian fellowship. I love the arrangement that we sang this morning and this emphasis on the faithfulness of God because we're going to be drawn back again and again over the course of our time in these four chapters to that which enables obedience for Timothy and you and I to the call that is being expressed. How is faithfulness something that can be obtained? Well, ultimately, it is because God has proven himself faithful. We must remember that as we work our way through these four chapters. God is faithful, and thus the call from Paul to Timothy and you and I can be to remain faithful. When things become challenging, difficult, Hardship settles in. Disappointment looms like a dark cloud. Remain faithful. Here it is, right? Remain remain faithful. On a chapter level, we see that the gospel-transformed life is a gospel-informed life. Right? That a, a gospel-transformed life is a gospel-informed life. We see these calls from Paul to Timothy. And he begins very early on in his writing, fan the flame of God's gift. Right? Fan into flame. And we're going to talk more in depth about each one of these as our time progresses this morning. Fan the flame of God's gift. Right? Embrace hardship and suffering as a follower of Jesus. Follow sound Timothy. Sound Timothy. Follow sound teaching. And sound Timothy, church, right? Follow sound teaching. Follow sound doctrine. And then finally, guard the gospel that has been entrusted to you. Guard the gospel that has been entrusted to you. Today, we are leaning into this idea that Christ Jesus is Lord. Right, that he is our Lord, that he is our King, that he is our Redeemer, that he is our Rescuer, that he rescues us from wrath, God's wrath, and saves us by faith. And then he strengthens us by the Spirit for these four things that we're going to look at this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 1. Four considerations from 2 Timothy chapter 1. First, we're going to observe and consider Christ-centered friendship. Christ-centered friendship in verses 1 through 5. We'll transition into uh, a consideration of endurance in ministry from verses 6 and 7. Confidence in Christ from verse 8 through the first half of verse 12. And finally, a love and defense of truth in verse 13. This is where we're going. 
So let us pray together as we prepare to, um, to unpack each of these points this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for time together with your people this morning as we lean into your word, understanding it by way of your spirit. We express gratitude. We express thankfulness for your great generosity, for your kindness. We pray that as we, as we lean into these truths, that you would open our hearts and our minds to greater and deeper understanding, drawing us into greater and deeper intimacy, producing from us greater and deeper faithfulness and greater and deeper worship, and that all of this would glorify you. That is our heart's desire this morning. And so we ask you to, to do that and to, to glorify yourself as Christ is lifted up through our time together this morning, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, before we um, begin uh, by exploring Christ-centered friendship, I do um, want to express a degree of gratitude for the Christ-centered fellowship that I enjoy uh, with David Anderson, whose birthday it is today. Um, and so uh, we're reminded we value things like birthdays. We can bring that up, not because we're going to bring David up here, make him the center of our attention this morning and offer gifts to him. Um, but we do value uh, Christ-centered, gospel-centered friendship. And um, David, happy birthday. We love you. And we're, man, wow, that, we didn't even practice that. I didn't tell them. It just happened, right? Yeah, happy birthday, man. We love you, and we are grateful for all that you do here um, at Christ the King and your service to the fellowship. So that being said, let us lean into um, our observance of Christ-centered friendship from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. When we talk about Christ-centered friendship, we're, we're really talking about and, and seeing here displayed gospel-informed community? And what is gospel-informed community? And how do we recognize it? How do we respond to it? These are a few questions that I want us to consider as we observe uh, all that Paul has to say in the first five verses. I want us to begin with this idea that gospel-informed community begins by embracing the centrality of Jesus. Gospel-informed community Right? The fellowship that we enjoy and the depth of said fellowship begins by embracing the centrality of Jesus. Three times in the first two verses, Paul points towards Jesus and the life that he produces in the once spiritually dead and hopeless. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. In verse 1, Paul highlights his service to Christ by the will of God according to the message of Jesus. In verse 1, we see from Paul this understood fellowship with God. And by way, implication of fellowship, deep, intimate fellowship, with other believers, having been brought together by God. Now, this is going to be really important in just a few minutes, and so let's make sure that we, that we understand this. Paul begins, Paul begins by highlighting his service to Christ by the will of God according to the message of Jesus. He recognizes and articulates this like beautifully and eloquently in so few words, the fellowship that he enjoys with God and how as a result of the fellowship that he enjoys with God, 
by God's work, we're going to observe that in just a few minutes, how that brings this added value to gospel-centered community. In verse 2, Paul articulates a clear confession, a shorthand of sorts of the lordship of Jesus and a total affirmation of his kingdom message. Look with me at verse 2. Paul writes this, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so in verse 1, there's this recognition that, that the fellowship that Paul enjoys with God comes from God. And in verse 2, there is this affirmation of the lordship of Jesus and his kingdom message. There is ascribed to him a very specific title, that being Lord. Now, as Paul writes this, something that's that's helpful for you and I to understand is that as a shorthand, he is saying here to Timothy in the beginning, we affirm the reality of the kingdom of God and Christ Jesus as the king, right? He, He begins there. Now, why is this all so important? Well, because let's remember where Paul is. We're going we're gonna to lean into, in just a few minutes, this, this great hope and joy and confidence that Paul possesses in light of difficulty because of what we see in verses 1 and 2. He can have that because there is this great realization of who Christ is. The reality of the, the kingdom, right? That there's something outside of the temporal. There's something that exists beyond us. Right? And there's confidence in one who leads and rules beyond us. That's going to prove to be really, really helpful. In spite of his circumstances, Paul displays great trust in Christ through his imprisonment and a continued submission to his leadership and an anticipation of a future fellowship both with him and his people. Remember the kingdom concept. Right? Paul possesses this really clear, supernatural confidence in the faithfulness of Christ in spite of his difficulty. All of this helps us to best understand Paul's heartfelt address to Timothy in verse 3 and 4. Remember, we said that this is a heartfelt letter. Right, that this is an intimate letter, right? That we see emotion referenced early on in this letter as it pertains to the fellowship that Paul and Timothy enjoy as a result of God's grace. We see that, that as a result of the centrality of Jesus in gospel-informed friendship, there is a great appreciation and value for this community. Here's the question that I want us to begin answering. How do we respond to gospel-informed, Christ-centered community? What are our thoughts about that? What are our feelings about that? What sort of emotions are invoked as we consider community with Christ occupying a central position within it? Look at what Paul writes in verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears 
I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. There is a clear distinction in the world. Right? And there is a clear distinction in this passage between community that is faithful and Christ-centered and community that is not. Right? Community created by God is marked by gratitude. We observe that in verse 3, and we're going to continue to unpack it as we make our way through this passage. We see thanksgiving. We see this natural, committed remembrance and worship. This is all contrasted with community lacking gospel centrality. What is the difference between community that Christ occupies a central position in and community in which that is not true? Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. In verse 3, Paul emphasizes his thankfulness to God for the friendship that he enjoys with Timothy and his continued commitment to Christ's work in him through prayer. He talks about praying for Timothy, remembering Timothy constantly, and offering prayers on his behalf to the Lord. Paul reflects back on their time together prior to his departure, as well as his strong desire to see him again. And so we see this emphasis on Christ-centered community in verse 1 and 2, right, 3, but, but it doesn't stop there. We actually see this bookend at the end of chapter 1 that brings this to light again. In verse 16, Paul speaks towards faithful, Christ-centered, Christ-glorifying friendship and service. In verse 16, Paul writes this, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and he found me. Paul expresses gratitude for Christ-centered fellowship and faithfulness that results from gospel transformation. This is contrasted with those who are unfaithful friends in verse 15. Right? Paul talks about all in Asia turning away from him. Like, all? That's a lot. Like, just everybody, right, is leaving. Ashamed of Paul and his imprisonment, among whom are two guys that are called out like they are Taylor Swift's ex-boyfriends, right? I mean, like, by name, here we are, right? Called out right here by Jesus and Hermogenes. Paul mentions them explicitly, contrasting Christ-centered community and the faithfulness that results and that which is unfaithful, right? We've got this one guy in verse 16 who, who looks for Paul, searching for him diligently, and then we have just all of Asia turning away, ashamed of Paul and his imprisonment. Practically speaking, there is a uniqueness to relationship within the church. There's a uniqueness to relationship within the church. There is a sense in which the fellowship that Jesus' people enjoy is even a bit strange to the world. A closeness and a 
care that results from fellowship with Jesus in his death and resurrection that stands out and raises a number of questions. As I was thinking about this beautiful illustration of Christ-centered community that we observe in uh, Paul and Timothy's relationship and their fellowship and what Paul has to say in verse 16, Onesiphorus and his looking for him diligently, his care, I couldn't help but think about certain uh, Christ-centered friendships that Courtney and I have enjoyed over the years. As a a newlywed couple, right, we have um, friends that we are still very, very close with. But as a newlywed couple, we spent so much time with this particular group of friends, this group of Christians, that we found that those outside of the friendship found the closeness and the intimacy that we enjoyed even to be a bit strange. And I'm not talking about pagans. Like, I'm talking about Christians who observed the fellowship that we enjoyed and the friendship that we had as Christ occupied that central position and they said, wait, like, a minute, right? Like, what... Like, this is, a bit, um, this is a bit weird for us. All the time that we spend together, all the meals that we ate together, going places together, sacrifices that were made from one couple to the other. Like, you guys are hanging out all the time, right? And you're, you're living mission together. Right? And you're, you're praying together and you're practicing the disciplines together. Like it's like you guys never get tired of one another. This is strange. Like this is, this is weird. And, and it never seemed to be that way for us. Like we never considered it. In fact, we went to places like Acts chapter 2 and we said, shouldn't this like Jesus community Like, be recognizable by the intimacy of the fellowship that it enjoys? Right? Doesn't a a gratitude to God in light of this realization that he has redeemed us and rescued us, calling us into fellowship with him and creating this new family, like, shouldn't that result in this type of fellowship? You look at Acts chapter 2 and you see this Christian community, right? That it's just giving things away for the good of one another, right? They're desiring to grow in holiness, in fellowship with God and with those around them. It's beautiful, and it's likely something that we have all heard of before, but maybe never really experienced. What we can say is this, that that Christ-centered friendship that is enjoyed, Right? And then continuously enjoyed, similarly to what Paul talks about here, is he continuously remembers Timothy, serves as a living model right? for, the, for the world to understand the work of the gospel on the human heart and the transformation that takes place. In fact, I think about the friendship that we enjoyed with this particular couple and the time that we spent processing this in light of what we observe in Acts chapter 2 and this new community. That the Spirit of God builds, that glorifies the sacrifice of the Son and lives in submission to the will of the Father. And I think, man, this is how that, this started like that, right? There's a handful of you in this room that were a part of a fellowship that was called Gospel Community. 
Right? This, this observance of what God does by way of his spirit through his people and how he glorifies himself like in their midst and this desire to like lean in and live that, right? People who are different than you, people who have children when you don't, right? People who come from a different place than you do or have much less or much more than you have. There's this care and there's this concern and this kindness that the Spirit of God fosters within this community that brings glory to himself. You think about the way that our missional communities function. Our desire is that they would function this way, right? That we would walk into a room of of fellow Jesus people and we would say, hey, you know what? Like, Like, I'm not here to click right? Like to click up and to like hang out and like do my thing, right? But I'm here to like display and experience the benefits of Christ-centered friendship and that he would be made much of through that. Does that make sense? This is all really important when we talk about this gospel-informed community. Do you consider the way that the gospel shapes your community? Do you consider the way the gospel calls you out of yourself and into fellowship with other people? Do you get that? That's what we see. It's It's a mark of the transformed heart. Right? And so are we living in that? Are we, are we desiring that? I think there's this great encouragement that we observe here for this type of thing. A friendship. That is what it is because Christ has brought it together around himself. A friendship, a community, that is what it is because Christ has brought it together. Paul recognizes that in verses 1 and 2. And he's brought it together around himself. Here's the reality. I want you to write this down. And I think we're going to put this up, maybe. I think we have this. Because I realize my points are long, okay? So here it is. This might help us out a little bit. Maybe. Maybe we have it. Do we have this? Yeah, there it is. Awesome. Hey, Jesus saves people. Jesus saves people to bring them into glorious Trinitarian relationship with God. He he brings us into gospel-centered relationship with one another to bring glory to himself as we get a taste of what is to one day be. That is beautiful, isn't it? Like the the relationship, the fellowship that we enjoy, this Christ-centered, Christ-focused community that we enjoy is just a taste right, of what, of what God is ultimately to bring us into. Right? As, the, as the new kingdom comes in its fullness and our relationships are new and full, absent of sin and suffering and hardship, preference, we get a taste of that. And so I think that the encouragement is in light of this realization that Jesus saves people to bring us into glorious Trinitarian relationship with God is that we would get a taste of that as we lean into Christian fellowship here. And now this is the type of fellowship that Paul and Timothy have enjoyed. And it is valued because, 
Why do we value Christ-centered community? Like, why am I encouraging you to to value Christ-centered community? Why do we value that? Why do we speak about that? Why is the whole point dedicated to that? Well, it's because it comes from Christ and it points to Christ. We value, look at me here, this is so important. We value Christ-centered community, right? Because we recognize, as Paul does, that it comes from, from Christ and that it points to Christ. Right? It points you and I back to Christ. Like here, if you are in this room and you are a, a follower of Jesus, like you need Christ-centered community. Why? Well, because life is hard and none of us are getting out of here alive, right? And so there's this need that we would continually be pointed back to Christ. That happens for the believer in Christ-centered community. In addition, we invite into our friendships those who are outside of the faith and skeptical of everything that God's Word has to say about what He has done and is doing. Why? Well, because there's a missional element of our Christ-centered community. It both encourages the saints... Right? And it provides almost this apologetic for the skeptic. So, what is the encouragement? Value and lean into Christ-centered community. Value and lean into, search out, seek, and engage with Christ-centered community. Our souls need it. Right? God uses it to display His goodness and glory to the world. Our friendships are missional. They ought to be. Our friendships are missional. In addition to the value of gospel-informed, Christ-centered friendship, we see that there is a specific response from God's people to the community that we enjoy together. I've heard it said before that the key to loving others is a love for God. In fact, I would go as far as to say that without a love for God, it is impossible to truly love other people. Well, how can you say that? That seems arrogant. Well, isn't it just like so ambiguous if we leave it up to like the world, right, and culture and individuals and what's acceptable in one place and unacceptable in another to determine how one shows love to another? We look to God's word to define and dictate how one truly loves another. In the marital relationship, in our friendships, we look to God's word. It is the foundation, right? It is is the um, the preeminent source of, of knowledge in terms of how God desires his people to live. Paul can say all that he does to Timothy in verses 3 through 5. And Paul can say all that he does in verse 16 because he has been made to understand, verse 1 and 2, the love of God. Observe through his pursuit and rescue of the undeserving. Right? Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Right, for, for you and I, so that we could know fellowship with God. Right, and that we, would, that we would know this type of relationship that He desires for His people created in His image to enjoy with 
one another. Paul can love God because his heart has been changed, having understood God's love in Christ. Paul can love people because his heart has been changed, having understood God's love for people in Christ. So let's say this, right? That, that God's love both inspires and enables our love for him. Like God's love and his pursuit of us, this realization of what he has done in redemptive history to save us from judgment, his wrath, inspires and enables our love for him. As well as our love for others and the Christian community he's called us into. Let me say that one more time. God's love inspires and enables. We have that. You guys got that part? Awesome. God's love inspires and enables our love for him, as well as our love for others and the Christian community that he has called us into. I love the emphasis in verse 16, just as we consider how in this passage we see this pointing to Jesus and the seeking and the searching that he does, that we understand he does to call us into the fold, right, to to save us. There's this emphasis in verse 16 on this individual who comes to Rome and seeks Paul, right? Man, what incredibly good and hopeful news. News that inspires worship in the hearts of the redeemed to understand that God has sought us, right? That he seeks us in Christ Jesus and that he calls us into fellowship with him. He rescues us. He transforms our hearts and he transforms our eternal destiny. Man, it is so it's so incredible to see how this, how this happens. In addition to Christ-centered friendship, we see a call to endurance in ministry. You guys still with me? Look at verse 6. Let's go to verse 6. Paul writes this. For this reason, I remind you, side note, it would be helpful for you to go home. And to reread that which we are seeing this morning and to read through the entirety of 2 Timothy with like a highlighter or a number two, whichever you prefer. And to underline, circle, highlight the commands that we see from Paul to Timothy. We can structure and better understand this book as we understand the commands from Paul to Timothy. They're they're everywhere and we see it in verse 6. He says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Again, there is this distinction, isn't there? We don't have a ton of detail as to what is most discouraging to Timothy in this season, apart from a continuation of 1 Timothy issues, as well as certain calls from uh, Paul into Timothy. What we do have, um, what we do have is an encouragement that seems to indicate a smoldering desire to fight. 
right? Like coals that are just beginning to, to go out. Any grill masters, right, in the house, right? Campfire people. You're your own breed, campfire people, right? The smoke, I just can't do it. It, it kind of kills me. That's why I say that, right? We see that there's a, a smoldering desire from, from Timothy to continue to, to lean in and continue to um, engage. As Christians, there is uh, a great possibility um, that many in this room get exactly what Paul is talking about here, even if you kind of got lost for a second on the campfire people thing. Right? Exhaustion. Confusion, frustration, anger, right? Feelings and emotions produced by difficulty in ministry. Feelings and emotions produced by difficulty in living mission. Here's a few. I wish that I was further along. It's discouraging, right? I'm not quite where I would like to be. I wish they were further along. It's discouraging that they are not quite where I would like them to to be why are we still walking through these same issues again and again and again? Why are we still walking through these same sins again and again and again? And as we reflect on right, the strong possibility that many within this room have had these types of thoughts and considerations before, it allows us to relate with exactly where we see Timothy at. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is God's encouragement to those who are weary in ministry and mission today. And so, if that's you, lean in. And if that's not you, praise God, lean in anyway, you're going to need it. What does it look like to fan the flame? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. That is the encouragement, though, to fan the flame. Timothy Paul says, I have recognized God's gifting you for this work. I have affirmed your gifting and call and this work by placing my hands on you. This is not some um, like, like supernatural transfer of power from Paul to Timothy, right? This isn't like, like Star Wars-esque that's going on here, right? The like, lightning bolts and the things happening, right? But it's more Paul is affirming God's gifting of Timothy to engage in this work, living not in the flesh, but now by the Spirit in self-control. And so the question then is this, right? Conceding the difficulty of ministry and mission and the life of faith, how does one go about fanning the flame? I read an article a handful of years ago um, by Timothy Keller, and it was incredible, and I'm so glad that I had the notes um, recorded in my Bible because I don't know that I could find it anymore. Resources disappear. Some things do die on the Internet. Like, I don't know how that happens, um, but some things do just disappear forever. And so as I was reading through this past week and I was considering a passage that I've revisited often, because there is this recognition of like my own like mortality, right? And my own challenges and, and difficulties, right? And responses to hardship and my tendency to kind of like sometimes want to just fold in, right? And like just lay down. Constantly found myself going back to 
to these notes on this passage. Five ways that we practically can go about fanning the flame, right? Timothy, what does it look like to fan the flame, right? What does it look like for you and I to fan the flame in the face of ministerial and mission burnout? Here are five things that we can lean into do and do by way of the great Timothy Keller. We consume God's word. Right? We consume God's word with a heart of humility and desire to know him and his promises. Dude, are you battling missional burnout? Right? Are you here and you're like, I can't do it anymore. Like, I cannot. I'm just exhausted. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. Hey, go to God's word. Consume, eat, live in, abide, enjoy God's word word with a heart of humility and a desire to know him and his promises. We need to know what is true in a world that is so difficult to read and understand. We need to know what's true. In a world where truth is constantly changing and the foundation seems so unsure, In order for the flame to be rekindled and the fire stoked, we must meet God in his word. So number one, right? Eat the book. Abide. Make a home in the word. And you're sitting here and you're going, I just don't want to. I just don't want to go to God's word. And like, this is where I'm just like, I don't care, right? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, go there anyway. You know, I don't want to run sometimes or like eat right or talk to someone, right? And you don't either. Don't lie or look at me in judgment. But we do. Why? Well, because we know what we need. Right? We know we know what we need. So consume the book. That's number one. Number two, embrace spiritual friendship. C point one, right? Embrace spiritual friendship. Christian life is meant to be lived in community as we call one another to lives that glorify God. And so fight the temptation to pull away. Fight the temptation to ostracize yourself. Sin and discouragement flourish in isolation. So fight it. Pursue after spiritual friendship and accountability that is found within these particular Groups, consume the book, embrace spiritual friendship. Number three, be open to pastoral counsel. Be open to pastoral counsel. Listen, um, I love you. Okay, I love you, and I'm here for you, and you might at times in seasons of difficulty convince yourself that myself, or in the future, other elders that are a part of a particular fellowship are too busy for you. And that is not true. It's a lie. I love you and I, and I care for you. And my ultimate desire for you is that you would look more like Jesus. And so I am not too busy. I am not annoyed. And I want to meet, chat, encourage, and point you towards Christ. And I confess my need for you to do the same for me. And so we open ourselves up to pastoral counsel. Number four, you guys still with me? Who's taking notes? Good. We're giving out gift cards at the end. For <laughs> Number four, study and read a lot. Study and read a lot. Embrace 
resources available to assist you in your personal discipleship. Books and blogs, be a reader. Make time for it. Invest in it. Our flames often are in need of being fanned. And so let us lean in. Let's, let's consume God's word. Let's embrace spiritual friendship. Let's be open to pastoral care and counsel. Study and read a lot. And finally, and this is truly a speaking to the choir, participate in corporate worship. Right, participate in corporate worship. Hearing God's word read with God's people. Singing to God with God's people, participating in the ordinance with God's people, observing the Lord's Supper with God's people. Don't enter this building and do anything as though you have checked out mentally. It's all purposeful, right? Everything that we do. One of my favorite things that's happened as um, a church here over the past year is that when we first started, we had two tables. We had a table here, and we had a table here. And we did that partly because we were like, well, we'll make it go um, quicker, and it was getting kind of backed up, and like logistically, like I'm awful at figuring those things out. And so we're like, just make two. Like, we'll just do that, right? That'll help. But then we got to thinking, or maybe I got to thinking, uh, you know, that doesn't send a picture that, that I don't know. I don't know that I'm enjoying the picture that that sends. There's intentionality to it, right? Like, we don't go to separate tables, but we come to the table, right? And we're not a divided fellowship, like you on one side and you on the other side, but we come together at the table and we encourage one another. There's an intentionality to the way that we come forward each week and participate in taking of the broken bread, right, and the cup remembering what Christ has done for this redeemed group of people. And if you're here, you're skeptical and you observe this, it's meant to display for you Christ's sacrifice for sinners and the fellowship that he produces. There's intentionality. Don't, don't check out. Come in. Lean in. Consider everything that you see, observe, and participate in in light of the gospel. Each of these are gifts from the Lord to assist and encourage us in the pilgrim life. We're stopping here. We don't have, we are no, no way, no way we are getting done today. And so here's what we're going to do. This is me, humility, right? Confessing that there's just too, too much to say. Um, here's what we need to, here's what we need to come together on. We see this informing of Christ-centered community understood in light of the community that has been brought together by God in Christ Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross for, um, for sinners. And so as we think about application and we think about how this points us back to Christ, know that this type of community is not something that we can create on our own. And without Christ occupying a central position within this community, um, we will not experience the benefits that Christ desires that we would. And so, ask yourself that question. Where am I, like, where am I pulling back? Like, where am I pulling back and what walls have I constructed? What preferences am I leaning into and embracing that are um, most definitely shortchanging um, some of the sanctification that uh, God desires to do in our lives? We ask that, right? 
Um, and then, as we come to the table, let us know um, what we have just said, that we are able to do so because of what Christ has done on the cross for us, that it is not anything that we have done. We see that Paul emphasized that next week as we will look at the confidence that we have in Christ in verses 8 through 12. Um, and then... Um, Finally, a love and defense of truth that we are called into. Let us today come to the table confessing sin um, in terms of our rejection of Christ-centered community and opening ourselves up to be willing to enter into it, both with him and with his people. That's where we're going to close our time this morning. So.